So um, I was watching, um, it's a fairly entertaining and mindless but fun show, uh, the Graham Norton show. And uh, I was watching it the other day and Tom Hanks was on it and was talking about how he hates that sort of Woody character that he has in Toy Story because he says the Woody character always wants things so much and he's like, oh, guys, come on, get over here, come on. Like, ah. and, and he's just, he's always, he's so tense and, and, and just wants and needs and feels helpless. And, and I was just thinking about whether it might be worth mixing up things just a little bit here and uh, in, instead of me being like a giant flaming cannonball of desperate truth, just being a smidge, a tiny bit, an infinitesimally small bit more chatty and uh, dinner party stuff, you know, rather than, <gasps> you know, this kind of stuff. So this is going to be experiment four tonight just to see if I can just be a little bit more relaxed mellow. Some might say drugged, but they would in fact be incorrect. But yeah, just while we wait for people to gather, let me just uh, have a look here and say hi to everyone. Chad is working. All right. Hello to Village Number. Hello to FN Basted. Hello to Mike. Hello to Spider Blip. Spider Blip. And Akeem and Mog. Hey, hey, hey. Dog bites potato. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Hey, I wonder if people can fill out, fix, figure out my eye prescription from the warp of my glasses. Thanks for helping me kick my abusive mother out of my life. I demanded she apologize for her abuse and she refuses. Yes, yes. Any PC issues today? Uh, yeah, in fact, um, I have this, oh, it's over there. I have this camera. It's a pretty good camera. A friend of mine helped me set up um, and I used it downstairs for a while. It has a fixed lens though, so when I walked back and forth, it would lose its focus. But I figured if I'm sitting on the couch, it should be fine. So I hooked it up to this computer. Uh, Windows, uh, Windows camera found it fine, but XSplit uh, wouldn't find it at all. So eh. uh, we're just going back to, this is a really, really good webcam, by the way, the Logitech Brio 4K. Uh, I'm not doing it at 4K, but it's really, really good webcam. So. We are going to have some talks tonight. Listen, I, I do want to hear from you guys as well, of course, but we are going to, we're going to talk the ladies, <laughs> ladies, we're going to talk the ladies and the draft. Have you heard about this? That, um, the, uh, just got a warning when entering the stream that it's for mature audience only. First time I see this. Yeah. And I think that's fair. I don't want kids watching this. So I think it's, uh, uh, I think that's totally fair. You have, I have angered the machine spirit. Is that right? Is that right? Okay. So I'm going to tell you what I think is going on. Hey, Steph, in your opinion, would COVID be over if it wasn't so politicized? I don't know, but we can compare this to the 57-58 flu epidemic and, of course, to the 1920, well, 1919-21 to 21 flu epidemic and what happened was people got sick and there was enough herd immunity uh, based upon just the natural acquisition of the illness that it kind of passed into history. So I don't know. Uh, there's some, some evidence that the PCR test picks up just the regular old flu. And of course, as you all know, the regular flu has just kind of disappeared from the West. So um, I don't know. It's, it's tough to say, uh, you know, an alternate timeline. But 
you know, pandemics like war are a good excuse for governments to just grab more and more power. And so, you know, that's what they're uh, doing. And when they will relinquish it, uh, it's, it's hard to say. They don't tend to do so very voluntarily very often throughout most of human history. So that's a good question, though. That's a good question. Let's see here. Uh, any other questions? Just we I am going to have a rant. Uh, haven't seen you for several weeks. Anything of any truly profound life-changing value or just the same old stuff? That's kind of a shitty way to start the conversation, my friend. Um, you know, it's always amazing to me how people just don't know how they land for others. You know, like, I am one of the most astoundingly and repeatedly original people around. I rarely re repeat material. And I come up with new analogies, new approaches. I've got new stuff to talk about tonight. So when you say, is there any profoundly life-changing stuff? Or is it just the same old thing? You kind of come across like a douchebag. I say that with love and respect. Not, you know, it doesn't matter to me. I'm just here doing my stream. But I'm thinking about your life as a whole. That's a really bitchy and negative way to approach people. And you might want to change that if you're not getting the kind of response that you want to from people in this life. So coming up with that catty, passive, aggressive, bitchy stuff, probably not the way that you want to be remembered in this life and probably not the way that you want to show up for other people. And then, then of course, what uh, then, then of course what people say is, and, and this is kind of typical, right? What they'll say, hey man, I was only joking, right? And then that's even more douchey, right? So, uh, yeah, and I am extraordinarily original. I mean, boy, uh, I, I've put out a free novel uh, that I wrote. Uh, I've just put out an NFT. Uh, I just put out a conversation with Suzanne Venker about marriage, sex, and family, and. Uh, I've been doing listener calls that are pretty wild these days. Nothing new. I did a whole call just the other night. You can find it at freedomain.locals.com, wherein I explain exactly why I continue to have these listener calls, you know, 15 years, 16 years into the show. That's lifting the lid on what it is that I do. So, yeah, I mean, I am really quite pleased with the originality of the ideas and insights that I'm putting forward. And so, yeah, just... It, again, I don't take it personally, but I note my own emotional reaction and wanted to communicate that back to you because this is a safe space. Like, you can be bitchy to me all you want. It's not going to throw me off. It's not going to ruin my day or anything like that. But I will notice that it is kind of bitchy, and then I'm going to pass this back to you. And I don't mean to sound mean or negative or anything. I don't want to be bitchy back. I'm just saying, look, this is probably not the way you want to live your life. It's probably not the way that you want to... Uh, show up for people uh, in the world. It's not going to get you a lot of great things in this life. Uh, and, um, you know, when, when people like myself, I just realized this. I just realized this. I put this out in the newsletter today. I just realized this today. It's wild for me anyway. So I found this document that I wrote when I was 23 called The Rationalist Manifesto, which was my ferocious response to the Communist Manifesto. And it's a medium length document and I spent a couple of hours reading it and reviewing it. Like what's the same, what's different from like 31 years ago, it's almost 32 years ago. I'll be 55 in um, two months-ish, uh, August, so yeah, two months. So it's almost 32 years ago that I wrote this and I wanted to go through what 
was the same, what was different. And I can really see the seeds of universally preferable behavior and some of the other things that I worked on decades later. I can see it in this early document, still heavily influenced by Rand and Aristotle and so on, but it's a really, really interesting document. And I was really so pleased to find it and to read it. And you can get it if you want. I'm putting it out as a limited NFT. I mean, this real history of philosophy stuff to get really early writings long before I became a public figure. That's real history of philosophy stuff. You can go to uh, freedomainnft.com, freedomainnft.com, and you can have a look. And I put it out for, I think, a quarter of an ether. And uh, there's only ever going to be 100 that are sold. So you get the full two and a half hour video of me going over the document, and then you get the actual document. So the reason it's important, not just sort of history of philosophy stuff, but I probably got as long to go as when I wrote that document, like in my life, right? So if I make it to 85, that's 86, which my father did, and my mom's still alive in her late 80s. So I have pretty good genes for longevity. So if I make it to 80, mid-80s, I've got as far to go forward as I did to go back to when I was 23. Now, I tell you, man, 23 to 54 is an almost unimaginable length and distance of time. I mean, I will certainly say that I've packed more than my fair share of living in this, right? So at 23... Gosh, I was uh, 1920, 21, 22. I was halfway between an English degree and uh, playwriting and acting at the National Theatre School uh, before I did my master's degree, before I was in business, long before I started this show. And, yeah, 1989. So what's wild about that is when I think of 23 to 54, I think of 54 to 85... That's a long time. And so it makes me sort of feel like, okay, I'm still kind of in the middle of something because when you get into your mid-50s, you feel, you know, I'm starting to get a little creaky. I can't quite do as much physical activity as I used to without various achy, painy things going on, even though I work out and, and try and stay fit and all of that. But it was really great for me to just feel like, okay, I'm not at the end of my youth. I'm in the middle of my adulthood, if that makes any sense. And it makes me sort of look forward to, like, there's a lot a lot to do, a long way to go, and still so much to achieve. So anyway, I hope you'll check out the NFT. Um, you can think of it as something, of course, for your own personal interest, which I think it is, but it could be a good investment, could be a resale thing down the road. You know, early Picasso, early Van Gogh, uh, early Freud, uh, whoever, right? Uh, and early me, eh, you know, I, I obviously aim to be in the same category as those people, whether history agrees with me or not will be a different matter, but that's the goal. But I'll tell you this, man. So a couple of weeks ago, I was feeling kind of down. I was feeling kind of down. And I'm a fairly buoyant person as a whole. My happiness is generally around, it's generally around seven to eight out of 10. And you know, it dips down a little, goes up a little, but you know, I, I sort of settle around seven to eight, which I consider entirely acceptable and, and a good sort of solid basis for life as a whole. Anyway, so I was, I was dipping down, not savagely, but I was dipping down for a couple of days. And I was like, what the hell's going on? Nothing in particular happened in my life. And uh, why would I sort of just feel weighted down? Or I get this sort of sensation like I'm walking along the ground and it's almost like I'm sinking into it a little bit, like my feet feel heavy and I just feel weighed down and, and negative visions flow through my brain like demon-haunted trains in a midnight tunnel. And anyway, I couldn't sort of figure it out. 
And then I did realize, of course, what had happened was it was about a year ago it was when I, this sort of happened. It was about a year since my Twitter, YouTube ban. And of course, it wasn't just Twitter, YouTube. It was PayPal and gosh, SoundCloud and uh, MailChimp and, you know, just a, a whole bunch of things all at once. And I was just, I think that you note these things in your mind and in your heart, even if you don't notice them consciously. So what I did, of course, in, in thinking about that and then finding this document, reading this document, I realized, oh my God, it was like 40 years of fighting. You know, 40 years of fighting since my mid-teens to my mid-50s. It's 40 years battling in high school, battling in undergraduate, uh, both in the English degree I took at York, half the English degree, uh, battling at theater school, which was run by socialists, if not downright communists back in the day. Uh, probably still is now, maybe even more so. Battling in, uh, uh, in my history degree at, at McGill, battling in my master's degree, battling in the business world, just a lot of fighting, a lot of fighting. And of course, you know, 2005 to now, 16 years battling in the public arena, uh, you know, anti-communism, anti-socialism, anti-collectivism, anti-fascism, anti-totalitarianism of every flavor, and anti-irrationality. And, you know, I, I landed some punches. I got some punches landed on me. And 40 years, man, 40 years. That is a long time to be at war. I'll tell you, that's a long time to be at war. And knowing when an old soldier needs to hang up his sword, it's a pretty good and pretty important time. So I'm really quite enjoying this particular process in my life where I get to focus on other things. And we'll talk a little bit about politics tonight. Uh, I'm more interested in the gender aspect and the intergenerational aspect of this female draft, but 40 years, man, that is a long time to fight. 40 years and, you know, a couple of million books read from me uh, that I wrote and, you know, close to 800 million views and downloads of the show and, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly went far bigger and far further and far more international and far more impactful than I ever, ever dreamed of. I had massive lofty dreams for this show when I first started, when I first had the idea. It went so much further than I'd hoped. And I really thank you guys so much for that. I, I'm so grateful for that opportunity because I'm just a guy with a, you know, four chords and the truth, right? And it's you talking about it and sharing it and discussing it and giving me feedback on it that has made it what it is. Uh, you are the whetstone against which the, sh this, the sword of my wit and is sharpened. And I thank you so much for uh, coming by tonight, for listening as a whole, for sharing. I know uh, I've, I've heard that in certain circles I could be considered a smidge, a smidge controversial, but uh, I appreciate you guys taking the bullets for the cause and for philosophy, but I really did notice it, um, that dip in my mood a couple of weeks ago, and then just reviewing where I was at the age of 23. Now, 23, I was seven or eight years into philosophy, so I was doing some pretty good stuff there as well. And you could really see the basis of what I did a lot here. I hope this also helps people understand, I didn't just drift into this out of nowhere. You know, it's like the Huey Lewis story, like the 10-year overnight success. So from... Let's see, oh gosh, 2005, I was 39. So from 23 to 39, what's that, like 16 years. So, you know, from 
gosh, let me see if I can do this math, from like for the 15 to 40, 25 years, subtract one, 24 years. So I had nearly a quarter century of philosophy before I got into the public arena as a whole. And that's why, you know, because I really did hit the ground running and I really had absorbed and, and, and lived the values. I'd lived the values because I'd been in the business world and I'd seen the difference between the public and the private and I paid taxes and managed people and I'd been in the academic world and, and seen that. I'd been in the art world as an actor and a playwright and seen all of that. So I had a very well-rounded view of the world, a lot of deep knowledge and experience. And thankfully, and perhaps most importantly, I had gone through very intensive talk therapy, very intensive talk therapy. I did officially three hours a week and then I'd do another eight to ten hours of journaling and dream analysis, and I was engaging in these ferocious arguments with myself uh, about life and, and how to live and, and what truth meant and what virtue meant in, in a practical sense. So I'd gone through all of that by the time I kind of burst full-formed onto the public scene, and this is why when I got a lot of pushback from newbies, you know, it's like, you know, I don't mean to say that experience always means that you're right, but I do want to say now, I guess after so many years, that when people would just kind of burst in and, oh, you're wrong, oh, you're this, oh, you're that. And it's like, yeah, like I know I'm new to you. I know I'm new to the scene. I know I was like one of the first podcasters. I was the second guy on YouTube. And I know I'm new to the scene. I know I'm new to you. But by the time I was a public figure, I was already a quarter century in. Very good education. You know, um, my graduate degree in the history of philosophy was really fantastic. And I'd already done the therapy, and uh, I was already married to the love of my life. You know, now we're 20 years on, and it's, you know, even she's even more wonderful than when we first met, and I'm so blessed and, and happy to be with her. And I was not a father as yet, but when I kind of came in, having debated and argued and written and read for 25 years, people just kind of wandering in in the comments and telling me what's what, and it's even worse now, of course, right? Where, <clears throat> so people just kind of wandering in, Ah, you know, you have to have worked really hard to have credibility with me because now I've been doing this for 40 years. Now, if I've been playing piano and, and playing piano hard and, and taken years and years of education in piano and played publicly and done piano tours, look, it's not impossible for someone to come and say, hey, you're not a very good pianist, here's how you should be better. But, you know, I, you know, when I was in, in um, Australia, a thousand people would sit in a hall waiting for me and Lauren to, to come out and do our speeches and, and, and do our Q&As and all of that. So, you know, when, when I've sold uh, 800,000, or people have listened to my music 800,000 times, so to speak, uh, 800 million times, sorry, and then people come along and say, you know, you're not very good at this. You really, it's like, you know... <laughs> It's, it's a little blind, and it's a Dunning-Kruger thing as a whole. Again, doesn't mean I can't be corrected, doesn't mean I can't be wrong. Of course I can. But all the easy stuff is already dealt with. Like, all of the easy stuff, all of the stuff where I'm obviously wrong, was dealt with long before I came into the public life, which is why I've had to retract very little. I certainly have had to retract some and change things over time as I've sort of grown and, and learned more. And, and of course, the, the very experience of being a public figure in the world of philosophy and dealing with the media and dealing with... Uh, all of these various things, yeah, it changes you. I mean, it changes you because you move more out of theory and more into practice. So uh, I just wanted to give you a sort of interesting overview of where things are. I'll answer a couple of questions and then we'll get into. Uh, to topic today's topic is um, women being drafted. All right. What do we got here? 
Do you have your daughter memorize times tables? Uh, yeah, we've gone through that just because I think it's easy, but you know, a lot of education came about when everyone didn't have a calculator in their pocket. I actually had a calculator watch when I was a kid, <laughs> when I was a kid so let's see here. We have heard the same stories a few times, but it's basically because not everybody has listened to your entire anthology. Well, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I will tell the same stories a couple of times, but I have well over 5,000 shows. And I'm very conscious when I tell a story that I've told before, so I will say I've mentioned this story before, and I'll generally keep it short. But the story is to illustrate a point that is generally new. So, Let's see here. You definitely try different approaches, but at its core, it's the same douchebag stuff, AMF. Oh, I don't think that's to do with me. Uh, let's see here. Hi, everybody. Is unschooling good for children? Um, no, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. Children can't teach themselves knowledge. Children can't teach themselves wisdom, right? We come into this world bald-brained and fully um, half-animal, half right? So, no, no, you definitely want to um, you t teach kids stuff. But you can do it more in conversation. You can do it in game playing. You can do it in a variety of methods other than just having them stare at a book. Uh, do you follow a set curriculum of homeschooling approach? Fairly new homeschooling mom. I'd love any and all advice. Um, so I've done a bunch of shows on homeschooling. You can go to fdrpodcast.com and you can look those up. Uh, yeah, I do follow a curriculum. I want to make sure that my daughter has the spelling and the basic math and the geography and uh, history. History, we do more conversationally. Like when we're driving around, I'll just tell her about history because the way that history is generally taught, it's so scrubbed of values. This is partly a result of you know, multiculturalism and mass immigration that when you get a bunch of, diff of people with different moral values in the same school, if you promote one moral value, then the, all the other parents and complain and there are lots of problems. So you have to scrub history free of moral values. It just becomes a boring series of events in Canada, you know, the, the, the British North America Act and trapping and beaver tails. And, you know, like it's just, it's really boring. And so history comes alive when you view it as an eschatological or Manichaean moral battle. It's when history comes alive is when it's good versus evil. Uh, just like uh, movies come alive when there's good versus evil. And so um, because good versus evil, well, I shouldn't say it's been scrubbed because now it's just all white Christians are evil. But uh, in general, uh, you want to try and bring as much uh, uh, excitement in that. Uh, I have not heard about the lawsuit that Blizzard is facing. Uh, let's see here. I have a friend who is obsessed with mortality but claims other people are the ones uncomfortable with death when he brings it up. Yeah, so most people who are obsessed with mortality, I think, are obsessed with mortality because they're not truly living. We're not here for a long time. It sometimes feels long, but we're not here for, for that long a time. You know, we're a blip in human history. We're even tinier blip in biological history. We're an even tinier blip in world history. Earth history in an even tinier blip in universe history. So we're here for a pretty short time. You've got to pack your challenges in. You've got to pack your excitement in. You've got to pack your facing down your fears and traveling the world and, and doing exciting things and meeting new people. You've got to get out and live. And even if that means getting out into the hinterlands of your own personality and pushing back historical atrocities and infidelities to reason and traumas, so if you're not living, you fear death because you're already half dead, right? Because fear 
that is unreasonable is death in life. I mean, some fear is healthy, some fear is helpful, some anxiety is healthy, healthy, some anxiety is helpful. You know, they say, oh, if you're depressed, you're living in the past. If you're anxious, you're living in the future and so on. It's like, no, no, anxiety and depression can all be very, very important things. And if you're not living richly, if you're not living deeply, if you're not having quality relationships, if you're not engaged in what Aristotle termed the greatest good, which is eudaimonia, which is the pursuit of excellence in your chosen field, and in particular, the pursuit of excellence in the spread of virtue, that's the best you can do in this life for, for happiness. Happiness is the process of spreading virtue in the world, living virtue and spreading virtue in the world. That's the happiest you're ever going to become. That does, of course, come with its risks and its blowbacks and its dangers. But if you don't have a sense of danger, you're not really alive. I mean, if you pretend every day you're just learning how to walk like you did when you were 18 months old or 12 months old, you're not really doing much. You need to have a sense of risk in your life, which means that you need to be a challenge to anti-rational, immoral, or downright evil people. You know, if you're a doctor and you never want to challenge illness, you're never going to be a good doctor. In fact, you're a bad doctor. And so if you are a good person, but you never want to challenge evil, you're not a good person. You're not a moral person. Morality is just not what you live solipsistically on your own. Morality is what you create, right? Simply having a light in a maze of dark tunnels without lighting other people's way and giving them light and sharing your light. You know, you can, you know, one candle doesn't steal the fire from another candle, it just shares it. And so you want to bring as much light to as many people as possible, both for reasons of the general spread of virtue and also for the selfish reason that if you're the only virtuous man or woman in the world, you're not going to last very long, are you? Because the evil people will wet finger you out like a candle in a hurricane. So... I would say that he's obsessed with mortality because death is reminding him to climb over his fears and get out into the world. And the little, the little death of pushing people away, like this guy, I don't want to pick him, the guy at the beginning who was asking, oh, is this just the same old stuff, the same old stuff? No. I mean, that's just, a, it's a little kind of death because it's just going to push people away. It's going to make people avoid you and it's basically bad parents programming you to push people away so that you stay with them you don't have good people in your life to show how bad they are it's all very predictable but yeah a fear of mortality arises because you haven't lived yet or you're not living yet not nearly as much as you should be and if it's any consolation i'm still working on that as well i'm still working on living more vividly and so on right uh, you're sounding like Alex Jones tonight. Really, really, really. Uh, somebody says, uh, Samir, I'm glad I discovered you. It changed my life. Thank you, Steph. Thank you very much. Bitcoin on fire tonight. Bull market back on. Well, I'm sure it's a complete, complete coincidence, but I did put out a pretty widely regarded video on um, why Bitcoin was doing well. Uh, Steph is a good surrogate internet dad. Ah, well, thank you very much. It's the topic with topics would be being drunk. No. Were you and your wife on the same page with homeschooling from day one, or did you have to convince her? Um, we had conversations about various options to do with schooling, and we generally follow the data and all of that. So, Could drafting women be a depopulation program by the regime? They're going to lose against the male army. Yeah, for sure. For sure. What is your opinion about the COVID vaccine? 
Um, I don't think it would be properly termed a vaccine according to the dictionary definition because it's not an attenuated or dead virus. It's put in to provoke an immune response. Um, I would refer to the Nuremberg Code for that. Let's see. Do you have plans to prepare for economic collapse? Yeah, I'm keeping my... Uh, I thought the little death was coming. Uh, no. All right. So let's talk about what's going on in, um, in America at the moment. So... Selective service system, right? There's a, is a senator or someone who's proposed that the women be subject to the draft, right? Now, the U.S., does anybody remember the last time the U.S. drafted soldiers? Anybody? Anybody? Bueller? Anybody? When was the last time the U.S. drafted uh, soldiers? I will look for your uh, responses to that. And uh, the Obama administration opened all combat roles to women in 2015. There was a Marine Corps study, though, that said female troops under performed males and were more than twice as likely to be injured. Well, of course, of course they are, right? Uh, it was 1973, 1973. And I just wanted to mention this reminder that, you know, if you have people in your life, could be grandparents, I guess, by now, or maybe your father if you're older, a Vietnam vet and so on, just remember, Vietnam vets were called baby killers because they were fighting communists, which is why Vietnam... Uh, movies always show trauma and abuse and door soundtracks and, and so on and horror, right? The apocalypse now horror stuff, right? Whereas the World War II movies are, you know, heroic guys going on the beach to fight Nazis. So because the communists run the media, if you're fighting communists, you're a baby killer and you're traumatized and they want to scare you away from fighting communists ever again. But if you're fighting fascists and allied with communists, because of course the, the uh, Europe, uh, well, uh, England and America were allied with Russia in the Second World War. If you're fighting fascists and you're allied with communists, then you're a hero. But the nature of war remains the same either way, right? So uh, I just wanted to sort of mention that. Uh, so, uh, and from what I read, 71% or more of young people are ineligible to join the military. This is back 2017 Pentagon data, maybe even worse now, because there's been more obesity and so on. Uh, it's funny too, right? Like now they're blaming everything on the, they're blaming the pandemic on the unvaccinated. But in many ways, the pandemic was an obesity pandemic because the vast majority of people who ended up in hospital for COVID were obese. And so they didn't get mad at the obese people who were both carriers, transmitters, and consuming massive amounts of healthcare resources. But now they're getting mad at the unvaccinated because reasons. So 71% of young people are ineligible to join the military because obesity, no high school diploma, drug use, or uh, and or a criminal record or any combination of these things, right? So uh, this, is, uh, this is the sort of sad tragedy. So yeah, they're, they're looking to wire women up. Now, this is something that's going to be negotiated and they'll probably, you know, whether it actually makes it through to the law, whether women do have to sign up. I'm going to go on sort of the reasoning why it's happening. And then I'm going to go on the costs and benefits of if it happens, right, in America. So first, the first thing to remember is that the studies that have been going back that measure what voters want versus what politicians deliver, there's almost no correlation between the two. I mean, just look at Trump, right? People voted him in to basically control mass immigration, and uh, he couldn't get any of that sort of stuff done, really, at all. They voted him in to build a wall. He couldn't really get that stuff at all. They voted him in to at least try and take on the Clintons uh, and 
uh, and illegalities and to repeal Obamacare, and he just really couldn't get any of that stuff done. So the relationship between what the people want and what the politicians deliver has is almost nothing to do with each other. Now, of course, there's special interest groups and, and all of that. But I think we can see this from the Pegasus software stuff. I don't know if you've noticed this or, or been following this, but I think it's a Israeli company that created backdoor ways of getting into Android phones and into iPhones. And some of them require that you click on a message, but other of them are zero click, like you all you receive the message and suddenly they can get all the way in with root access and do even things to your phone that you can't do. Like, you know, of course they can turn on the audio recording, they can turn on the video recording, they can go through all of your messages and your contacts and your history and your chat logs and you name it, right? They can, yeah, they can do things that even you uh, can't do as an end user. And I think there's a list of like 50,000 people um, and some are politicians, some major politicians, some are activists and so on. So the reason I'm saying all of this, I mentioned this on the show before, but the reason I'm saying all of this is that I think it's fairly safe to assume this has been the case for a long time, but I think now everyone has these spy machines on their bodies, right? I think now it's fairly safe to assume that um, nobody gets into power who isn't compromised. Like nobody gets into power who isn't compromised. Because if you can basically go through everyone's emails, go through everyone's chat logs, look at their contact history, look at their location data, where they've been, when they did, what they're in, turn on the camera, turn on their phone, uh, turn on their video and so on, then you're going to get compromising material on just about anybody. And the people who have that compromising material are really in charge of the people in charge. It's like the Epstein thing, right? If the theories that seem to be true were the case, that Epstein was bringing people to his island and having them come to his Manhattan townhouses and so on, there were videos, video cameras everywhere, he would have underage girls, and then he would perhaps video uh, people having sex with the underage girls, and then it's like, okay, man, you do, what I, you do what I tell you to do, otherwise I'm turning this over to the police and you're going to have 10 years in prison and be disgraced and, and you know, all of that, right? So... As to why the draft thing is coming up now, I don't have any proof of this, of course, but it seems perfectly reasonable and there's tons of evidence for it. But the reasonable thing, I think, to assume is that um, they have something on the politicians. Uh, and so who is it who wants women to be, uh, to be drafted, right? Who is it who wants women to be drafted? Now, for those of you who don't know, this came up back in the day. There was, I think in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a... Uh, a law that was put forward, I think it was, no, it was more than a law, it was a constitutional amendment called the Equal Rights Amendment that said it was absolutely illegal to have any differences between the genders in law. And the late Phyllis Schlafly, who I had on my show a couple of times, a very great old woman, she fought hard like crazy. I think people said, oh, you're talking about all these legal issues, but you're not a lawyer. So she became a lawyer just to, to do this. And she went state to state and fought very hard against the Equal Rights Amendment. And most people, of course, liked the idea of equality, but what she found was the case, was that when she said to women, but with the Equal Rights Amendment, you will be drafted, because having a male-only draft will be unconstitutional. So if the Equal Rights Amendment passes, you will be drafted, if there's a draft, because the legal challenge will be very clear. You can't overturn the Constitution, at least not easily. And so, what is it, two-thirds of the states needed? So she ended up almost single-handedly stopping the Equal Rights Amendment, and the, the clincher of the argument was that women didn't want to be drafted, right? Now, 
This, of course, going back historically, this is why men got the vote. Men got the vote because they were subject to the draft. Because they were subject to the draft, it was assumed they would have a greater degree of interest in politics. And since women got the vote, I mean, various times all over, but since women got the vote, the level of ignorance women have about political matters on general is appalling. Absolutely appalling. I mean, you'll, you know, just go to the supermarket checkout. There's not a lot of uh, National Review. There's not a lot of, you know, like uh, um, Mensa-style stuff about politics. There's a lot of stuff about, you know, lies about Dr. Phil from various newspapers and uh, more Princess Di photos than you can shake a stick at and more Benefer resurrected and, and what's happening in the Jolie divorce. I mean, a lot of gossip stuff and all of that, right? But, you know, the old. this is a tweet I put out a couple of years ago where... Um, women said, we want the vote. And men said, okay, okay, you can have the vote, but you're going to have to learn about politics and you will be subject to the draft because that's the price of voting. And the women basically said, yes to the voting, no to the draft, and no to learning anything about politics. Right. So again, you, there are tons of exceptions, Phyllis Schlafly, of course, being one, uh, Anne Calder being others, and, and there are tons of people, um, who, women, who are very brilliant in terms of politics, and, uh, and you know, Ayn Rand being another, but as a whole, uh, women have remained appallingly ignorant of politics, and that partly is because they're not drafted. So who does it benefit for women to be drafted? Well, of course, it benefits those who oppose America, right? So China, of course, under COVID, is making very threatening gestures uh, towards Hong Kong, is made threatening gestures towards Taiwan, is pushing the envelope with regards to Russia and so on. So, yeah, they're on an expansionistic uh, kick. Uh, they need more population geographically because the one-child policy is whittling down their population, and they're having a hell of a time trying to turn it around, right? Uh, it's a lot easier to... Uh, um, to let something grind to a halt than it is to get something started again, right? It's a lot easier to push a rock down a hill than to push a rock up a hill. And so that is sort of a big issue for China. So what they do, I assume that the enemies of America would very much like America to have a, uh, a draft for women. And of course, if 71% of young people are ineligible for the draft for the military uh, because they're males, and also uh, an IQ issue as well, right? So the American military, if I remember the number rightly, they don't take anyone with an IQ of 83 or below, and they have all these tests to determine IQ. And this is a no-fooling situation because they have found with people with an IQ 83 or 82 or below, there's no amount of training that you can give them that produces any value. They, they simply can't learn things. They don't remember things. And one of the things that happened in Vietnam was they significantly lowered the IQ requirements because they were running out of people. And... They were called, Robert McNamara was the Depart Secretary of Defense, and they were called McNamara's morons because they were over there and they were just idiots and they were dangerous. And you'd teach them passwords and they'd forget the passwords and shoot people. They'd think it was really funny to pull the pin off a grenade and roll it in and, and then grab it and throw it out. And sometimes they'd make mistakes and, and they'd get lost in the jungle. And I mean, it was just a complete mess. It's one of the reasons why. And of course, they got very addicted to drugs because of a lack of deferral of gratification and so on. And um, they would be um, uh, very low impulse control. So this is where some of the massacres would have, uh, have occurred. I don't know about the My Lai massacre in particular, but some of the massacres would have occurred because you just had very unintelligent soldiers. Uh, and again, 
it was to the advantage of the uh, communists, particularly the Soviets back then, that you would not allow a discussion of IQ uh, and so on, because if you don't allow a discussion of IQ, then you draft lower IQ people, and everyone thinks, well, you know, they've not had much opportunity, they come from a poor background, maybe they're black, but we'll give them training, everything will be fine, but you can't talk about the genetic basis of IQ, uh, because uh, it, it takes away a weapon from the enemies to make sure that dumber people get into the military, but... So, I assume that it's America's enemies uh, who want this draft to occur. Of course, everybody knows. Uh, and, and you saw this when there were sort of threats of war over the last couple of years. Various things would, would come up that would sort of flare up in Syria or with Russia or other things. There'd be sort of these threats of war. And immediately you'd see, back in the day, for me at least on Twitter, you'd see all of these women posted, oh, is there going to be a war? <laughs> and then they'd, they'd have pictures of themselves baking cookies and running vacuum cleaners and ironing and taking care of kids. Because, oh, if there's going to be a war, then I want to go back into the home. Then I'm not a feminist anymore. I don't want to go to war. So I'm going to bake cookies. I'm going to raise children. I'm going to be a 50s housewife. I'm going to greet my husband in, in a, a skirt and makeup. I'm going to be just this wonderful, wonderful stay-at-home 50s wife because I don't want to go to war. And, and it makes you a little bitter, of course, as a man, but you can completely understand where, where the women are coming from. So everybody knows what happens, of course, when you have men and women serving together. There are relationships that are formed, boyfriend-girlfriend formed. Uh, there are sexual assault issues. There are rape issues. And then there are just having sex issues, right? So if a woman is in the military and she's going to be deployed to the front lines, yes, for sure, some of them will go. I think most of them would simply, whoops, I got pregnant, and then what are you going to do, right? Well, you can't send a pregnant woman into combat. I mean, she's already carrying a pack on the front. She can't carry a pack on the back as well. So it's simply just, you know, this is a historical thing that I think is important for people to understand because they say, oh, well, women didn't have opportunities to become doctors and lawyers and engineers and so on in the past. And it's like, well, yeah, of course, because society had so few resources that for, let's say, in a town, you could only train one doctor, one doctor, because there weren't any resources for more than one doctor. So if you can only train one doctor, you want to train the man, because the man isn't going to get pregnant, isn't going to breastfeed, isn't going to possibly die in childbirth, isn't going to, you know, be, be exhausted with a baby up crying all night. So he's going to be out there and actually do the medicine that you need him to do. And so women were barred from these professions because they spent 20 years of their life disabled with childbirth and, and breastfeeding and raising children. And then they graduated to grandchildren and they, their kids needed help and so on. So it wasn't because people hated women. It's because society, you need a lot of money printing to create the illusion that women can both provide as much economic value as men and also have and raise uh, children, I mean, give me a why here if you know, and I won't go into details, but give me with a why if you know that. <laughs> I'll pick up a copy via manifesto just waiting on my cartoon goat NFT to sell for $10,000. That's very good. That's very good. Uh, hit me with a why if you know a woman who's trained in a technical field or a professional field who does not work in that technical or professional field. So let's say that she trained as an engineer, but 
she works in sales or let's say she trained um, uh, as a lawyer but she's now uh, working uh, uh, she's at home uh, raising kids or whatever it is right I think like for, for within a couple of years of getting a, a, um, a master's in business degrees uh, women are not even in the workforce at all right so we, we're training all these women to do all these things and then if they go and do those things, we don't have the next generation. So the whole thing's been kind of pointless. If they do go and do the, if they don't go and do these things because they're raising the next generation, we're just down whatever number of those, those things, right? So putting a lot of training into women, if they go and have kids, which I think is going to make them happier and certainly is the whole point of civilization. So yeah, um, tech writer just left to do some kind of travel foreign aid. Yeah. You, yes, I know 14 I can think of, right? Yeah. Uh, sister trained as a nurse, now an assistant school teacher. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're down one nurse, right? You're down one nurse. And so this is why, I mean, yeah, there's bell curve differences between men and women, but as a whole, like why are men in history, men were typically doctors and women were typically nurses. Is it because everyone hated women? No, of course not. It's because women need more health care than men. And if women are the doctors, they'll get less health care because they're less available to provide health care because they're raising children or having babies or they're pregnant or whatever, right? So it's because we love women. Women need lawyers. And so if you train a lot of women as lawyers and then they go off and have kids, there are fewer lawyers, less lawyers available to provide for women. And so uh, women need houses built. So if you train women as architects, you understand, right? So it's because of a love of women that we would not invest massively in women because they would be investing massively in the next generation, which is their contribution to civilization and society and all of that. And just, you know, because you see this kind of thing, I dipped into, oh God, what a revolting acid pool of sociopathy that was, man. I dipped into um, the 27 plus adaptation of Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, Handmaid's Tale, Handmaid's Tale. My God, is it ever psychotic. It is just truly mad. Eye-gouging, forced rape, electrocution of women who disagree. I mean, it, it's just completely mad. It's completely deranged. And yet, of course, being a broodmare, pumping out kids, you know, the, the, the beauty and glory of a woman investing wisdom and nurturing and knowledge and education and cultural value transfer, you know, taking the empty vessel of the child and, and filling the child with wisdom and virtue and beauty, appreciation and goodness. I mean, that is a fantastic and wonderful thing to do. And the idea that somehow this has been translated into just women being broodmares or squeezing out pups and so on, this reducing the beauty and depth of life to mere biology, it's an atheist thing as well. Um, I'm going to work on my proofs for God, but one of them involves sort of this. It's just something I'm working on to challenge myself. But uh, so, yeah, it's, it's not because women were hated. It's because women were loved. You know, like women like to eat and they like to have food for their children. So if you trained a lot of women to be hard scrabble farmers, well, you'd have much less food and they and their children would starve to death because they wouldn't be out there uh, at 5 a.m., um, hoe in the back 40 and, and milking the cows because they would be raising the children and dealing with the babies and all of that. So it's because we love women that we kept them out of the hard scrabble professions that were in great short supply. So anyway, it's just kind of funny that way. So 
Yeah, so I think there is definitely that aspect of things, for sure. Is Handmaiden Tale designed to drive a persecution complex in women? Uh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Oh, yeah, so it's a funny thing, too, right? So, I mean, it just it shows you the power of propaganda. It's really an amazing thing. It just shows you the power of propaganda because women say to their husband, to the father of their children, to the, the love of their life, to the union of their souls, they say to their husband, don't you tell me what to do. Don't you tell me what to do. And then they go to some boss and say, you, you tell me what to do. <laughs> so bizarre. Okay, so uh, let's get back to the draft thing, right? So, yeah, I mean, women are physically weaker and they're more frail too, right? I mean, I remember um, when I was in Alaska many years ago, I took, I went on a really lengthy hike, a hike, and um, the guy who was the guide, we, we fell to talking, and he was telling me about his life. This is anecdotal, I understand, I fully understand that, but it's just a way of illustrating the point. He was a very fit guy, a very healthy guy, a very strong guy, and he said, he was in his early 30s, he said, hey, I was in the military for, for quite a while. And I just had to quit, man. I just had to quit. I said, oh, was it conscientious objection? Or it's like, no, no, no. He said, it wasn't that. I mean, there was some of that. But mostly, my knees were fucked. My knees were just complete. And they still are. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, oh, man, they, they put us on the 80-pound packs, and, and we'd just be climbing and, and hiking and marching. And, you know, this just grinds your knees down. It's just gear on gear. There's no cartilage left, just grinding down. And I said, well, didn't they you know, give you any physio or rehab. He's like, no, 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 God, they just, they just hand you fistfuls of pain pills. Just give you pain pills and you just keep marching. And then my knees are completely shot. And of course he was a hiking guy. And I'm like, but you're a hiking guy. He's like, yeah, I mean, they hurt, but you know, the military at least taught me how to deal with pain. So I don't know, maybe he was, I don't know, stoned on pain pills while we were hiking. But and that, that, that's a big, strong, fit guy. He just his, his entire cartilage got ground down. And of course, the number of men who come out of the military with knee issues, hip issues, ankle issues, back issues, and so on. I mean, it's, it's horrendous, right? And the physical punishment that men can take is far greater than the physical punishment that women can take in terms of this kind of stuff, right? So, yeah, I assume it's the enemies of America who want a female draft. And there's something in it that's quite powerful as well. So whatever you can do culturally to turn men and women against each other, right? When you want to beat another country, you want to depopulate it, right? Now, the traditional way of depopulating another country has been to bomb the shit out of it, right? To, to, to bomb it, to, uh, to invade it, to, to kill people, to, you know, this kind of stuff, right? So you bayonet them and, and, and so on. So the traditional way to depopulate a location is through direct violence, the Genghis Khan stuff, right? Violence, you kill the men and you rape the women and that replaces the genetics of the population. So depopulation is, <clears throat> excuse me, is completely foundational to, to battle. All, all battle is about depopulation of, uh, of your enemies, right? Now it can be hard depopulation that you just kill them, or it can be a soft depopulation in that, like the French resistance when they were fighting against the Nazis in, in Vichy France in the 1940s. They would specifically not kill the soldiers, but they would rather wound them so that the German government would have to pay for medical care expenses, rehabilitation, and so on, and, and all of that. And, and so it's more, drain the treasury more. 
<clears throat> so in, in the same way, the IEDs are not specifically designed to kill, but rather to, wane, to, to maim and to wound the soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and other places, because that way you have millions of dollars spent on medical care, rehab, and so on. And of course, the battlefield medicine has improved to the point where people who would have died even 10, 20 years ago are alive now. And again, pensions and, and uh, rehabilitation and benefits and, oh gosh, it's just crazy, right? So yeah, depopulation is the key to war. Whatever, whatever enemy you're facing, you want to depopulate them. And so the way that you depopulate in the propaganda war is you turn the men against the women. And you, it's harder to turn the men against the women because we have, I think, slightly higher sex drive and so on. And, but it's, it seems much easier to turn the women against the men. And so, I mean, the way that you do this, of course, I mean, the obvious ways we all know, I can just touch on them briefly. So the way that you do it is you say that, oh, the men have oppressed you throughout history, which is not true. Men have generally worked very hard in Christian Western countries to protect women. So um, you say uh, men exploit women, men uh, put down women, you're a male chauvinist pig, men are always endlessly violent towards women, and uh, you never talk about women's violence towards children, which is the real pandemic in, in, in the world. And... What else do you do? Well, of course, you make uh, you, you tell women that uh, marriage is institutionalized slavery. You tell women that you can't ever trust men, so you have to be independent. You have to make your own money. And then you pretend that women are economically valuable, in particular when they have children, by printing money to subsidize daycare so that, you know, if a woman, a woman has to make a lot of money, a lot of money to make up for the cost of childcare. Uh, child care is pretty expensive in the free market, quality child care. And so most women break even at best, or maybe it's a small loss, or maybe it's a tiny gain, but most women end up working for a couple of bucks an hour at best if they are out there working and paying for child care. So it's all complete nonsense and completely useless. But if you can get women to be paranoid that the man's just going to dump them and, and, and run off with a younger woman and he doesn't write uh, the first wives club kind of stuff, then the woman is going to feel she has to be out there working because if she relies on the man and depends on the man, he's going to dump her and she's going to be starving in the gutter or whatever it is, right? So you just, you create this mistrust. And through the mistrust uh, from women to men, you end up with a much lower birth rate, much lower birth rate. Because if you can also, you will subsidize women enormously to go into college because you get women out of high school, 17 or 18, you get them into college for a couple of years and then you bury them with loans uh, loan payments or loans they have to pay back. I mean, it's fantastic for depopulation because the woman can't go and get married right after being in university because the man doesn't want to take on the debt, her debt, right? So she's got to work to pay off the debt, which means she's got to go into the workforce. That, of course, drives wages down, which is great for the capitalists. And then she works and maybe by her early mid-30s, she has paid off her student loans. She's ready to settle down and all of that. And... Um, you know, hopefully she doesn't have the uh, echo, echo, echo vagina cavern, but um, she's going to be ready to settle down. But if you can push off a woman's fertility from like 18 to her mid-30s, then you've got a good 17 years where she's not having kids. She starts, even if she can snag a guy, she starts to try and have kids in her mid-30s. Maybe she'll get one, maybe she'll get two, but you need at least 2.1 for population maintenance, let alone growth, right? 
So, I mean, of course, the other thing you do, you have mass migration, wherein massive amounts of resources are transferred from the domestic population to the immigrants through the welfare state and through subsidies and all that kind of stuff, which means that taxes are too high to have many kids, which reduces the domestic population and increases the immigrant population. Thus, this is why whites are a minority in the next generation in um, in America. So, I mean, these are just lots of different ways that you can do it. And of course, you have to have a no-fault divorce situation. You have to have uh, a family court that is very gynocentric in order to make men afraid to get married. Uh, you, you tell women that marriage is just being a broodmare and it's exploitive and it's institutionalized rape. And then you tell the men, or you show the men, uh, the smoking crater where their fathers were after divorce court gets through with them and you just have a whole generation that's completely terrified to get married, completely terrified to have children. And this is a fantastic depopulation. Now, this takes basically two, two and a half generations, but uh, it's a fantastic way to bring a civilization to its knees, to simply just program and propagandize um, men and women to not, not have kids. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty safe thing to do, very safe thing to do. And you will see this. I mean, you will see, when was the last time you saw a white male who was a fantastic husband and a fantastic father? And I mean, it's very rare now. It's very very rare. And you know, it's like that meme of the black guy stopping the white guy from catcalling because, you know, blacks respect women so much. We can see that in, in their entire community, especially the rap videos, right? So, but there's another more subtle thing to do as well, which is to make men roll their eyes, go MGTOW, and be, quote, disgusted with women. And so what, what happens is, of course, when the draft thing comes forward, what you'll see, of course, is a lot of these I'm going to stay home and bake cookies kind of jokey memes. But what you'll also see, of course, is you'll see a lot of erudite scholarly discussions as to why women shouldn't be drafted. It's inefficient. They're needed to raise the children. Uh, they can't handle the physical demands, blah, blah, blah. Now, you'll see, and of course, this is really brain-twisty stuff because, of course, the whole thing has been men and women are equal. Men and women, okay, let's treat them equal. Oh, no, 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 they're not equal, right? And... Um, so you will see a lot of eye rolling as women twist themselves into pretzels to avoid the logical consequences of wanting equality with men and of wanting the vote, which is to be subject to the draft. And that makes men look at women as conniving, manipulative, greedy, blah, 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 like all of the cliches that some men have about sort of the worst aspects of, of cliched femininity. I'm not saying women are like that, but great prominence will be given to women creating these, you know, squid, ely, oiled, Vaseline tentacles up the nose, arguments to rearrange your brain where it's somehow unfair for women to be subject to the draft. You know, it's bad, it's wrong, it's inefficient, blah, blah, blah. And they'll cite physical differences, which of course have been completely denied in the past, right? They'll cite uh, psychological differences, which have been completely denied in the past. And uh, they'll cite uh, pregnancy, right? So, well, you can't have women go in the military because they'll get pregnant. And that's really, really inefficient. It's like, okay, well, what about the workforce? What about the workforce? You know, you, you hire some woman, who is, um, you know, in her late 20s and, and she's a professional, well, you can't ask her if she's married. You can't ask her if she intends to have children. That's all illegal. And so if it's really inefficient to have women go into the military because they might get pregnant and then choose to stay home, what about the inefficiency in the business world? And doesn't that do something to explain the wage gap? Anyway, so there'll just be this, you know, like they're doing with the unvaccinated people, blaming the unvaccinated people where they never blamed the obese people. And so it's just... For anybody with a sense of consistency, it really does feel like you're living in a house of mirrors, a uh, laser beam, disas brain disassembly madhouse uh, these days. But I guess maybe it's always been the case. I'm just noticing it more. So there'll be a lot of 
discussed and, and, you know, of course women don't want to be drafted. I mean, it's worse than slavery in many ways. Because when you're drafted, slaves aren't sent out to get shot. Slaves can have families. Slaves can have a life. Slavery is awful and evil, but it's not quite as bad as, as being drafted because people aren't shooting you just a slave unless you're trying to escape. So, but there is something that is really important, I think, that is going on. And I'll, I'll close off here and then take a couple of questions if anybody has any. But here's something that's really interesting with regards to women and the draft. So, I've had listeners recently complaining about, more than recently, but complaining about addiction to pornography. Now, if you want to understand women's relationship to the state for men, look at your relationship to pornography. And you'll have some sort of understanding. So, women's relationship to the state is it seems to provide great benefits to them and, and really, really feels that way, but it costs them significantly in the long term. So for women, it used to be before we had all of this wealth and before we had the government controlling currency and controlling interest rates and, and money production and so on, it used to be, think of the story of Dr. Faustus, right? Or the traditional story of, of how the devil operates and what the devil does, right? So the way the devil works, as you know, is the devil offers you some wonderful benefit that you have not earned yourself. It could be beauty or, or, or fame or talent or money or something like that. He offers you some wonderful benefit and you go out and you're initially incredibly thrilled and happy. You think it's wonderful. All your problems are solved and so on. And then what happens is because it's not organic to your nature, because you didn't earn it yourself, it begins to hollow you out. It begins to be destructive to your life. So let's say the, the devil gives you all this money and then Everybody wants something from you for nothing. Uh, lots of people try to befriend you. They try to get you to invest in their businesses. Only, only, uh, they only care about your money. They don't care about you. And the money then becomes this big wall around you that people can't penetrate to get to the real you. And you become disgusted at the money, but you can't let it go. And your life just becomes kind of horrible. Or for a woman, uh, let's say she sells her soul to the devil to get great beauty. And then she walks through and of course everyone's impressed and, and they part before her and she gets modeling contracts and she becomes famous and she's like uber Kardashian. Of course, she can't smile anymore, both because her soul has left her body and also because she doesn't want any wrinkles. And then what happens is, of course, people never see the real her. They only see the physical beauty and everybody wants to exploit her. And then younger models come along and she starts to feel really old and the first tiny wrinkle makes her completely paranoid and and she can't have children because it'll ruin her figure. So then she ends up alone and, and abandoned and isolated. And so you can go through this a million different ways from Sunday. But the reality is that the story is the devil gives you what you think you want, that you don't want to earn. It ends up giving you great excitement, great joy, great happiness. I mean, you see all the people in, in the real world, you see all the people who win the lottery, jumping up and down and, and screaming with joy and happiness, and then you follow them up five or ten years later, and their lives are complete hell. Right? They're divorced, they're in jail, they're, uh, they're broke, they're, I mean, it's just horrible. And so it used, the story used to be in one generation. Like, you couldn't sell your soul and have your son, your son, pay the price. I, the first thing that comes to mind is The Monkey's Paw. If you've ever read the story of The Monkey's Paw, where a guy, it's an old story now, it's not much of a spoiler, the guy uh, wishes for money and um, he ends up getting money because his son 
dies in an industrial accident, he gets money from the company. So in this case, he wants something and his son pays the price. But usually it's the individual who wants something who then pays the price. And so when it came to the draft, men had to pay close attention to politics because it would be them who would go to war. But here's the thing. If you look at the relationship between the boomers, the Gen Xs, the millennials, and so on, and the Zoomers, I suppose, the OK Boomer, Shut Up Boomer, all of this kind of stuff, it's because the boomers got the benefit and the next generation is paying the cost. And that's because there was enough wealth to bribe the boomers pretty much from cradle to grave and leave the bill for the next generation. And once you can get the intergenerational hostility going as well, and you don't see this in other cultures, you don't see this much in the Jewish culture, you don't see it in the Islamic culture, you don't see it in the Hindu culture, there's a lot of respect for the elders as a whole. But in the Western culture, there's this contempt for the elders, and the elders are, you know, selfish and entitled, and I've done videos on this before and so on. So, because then, uh, and you of course paint all the elders as out of touch, as, as tech illiterate, as racist, as sexist, as old school, as, as primitive or whatever, right? And that way, all of the older values of the older generation, some of which were very good, they tend to um, not get transferred to the next generation, which means that they're much more open to be programmed by people in school and in the media and in academia and so on. So what you have now is you have a multi-generational, one generation gets the benefits by selling the soul of the next generation. So the boomers had their housing prices propped up by mass immigration, but the next generation is having to pay for the fallout from mass immigration, right? So, and of course, a lot of, of the devil will generally keep the costs away from you until it's too late to turn back. And so in this particular situation, we have intergenerational devil selling. The story of Faustus is, you know, so I'm just a little bit below boomers. Boomers were 64 and I'm 66. I think boomers were 64 and I'm 66, 1966. So my generation is paying somewhat. The next generation is paying more than the next generation is going to pay even more. And it's the same thing where with all of this money printing and all of this money creation, the people who benefit are no longer the people who pay. And I hope this gives you some sense of how we can forgive them or at least understand where they're coming from. Because if you pay, you are at least reaping the punishment of the sins that you have committed. But if the government can, has so much wealth and can create so much money that it can pay for you for, from cradle to grave, indoctrinate you from cradle to grave, and then the next generation, you have a guilty conscience in a vague, abstract way, and what you'll do to the next generation is say, well, why don't you work harder? Or I was able to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Or why don't you do this? Or why don't you do that? It's the old economy Steve memes. So when it comes to something like women being drafted, What's really fascinating is that the devil is coming to collect. Because women have had it fantastically for the last 70 years or so. I mean, even if you go further back, they weren't drafted for World War um, II. And the Depression 
the Great Depression and so on was, was terrible for women, but they weren't the primary providers, so it wasn't quite as stressful because they weren't, I mean, it was stressful for them because they didn't have to eat and they had to travel a lot sometimes to escape the Dust Bowl, but they weren't the primary bread earners, so they could put pressure on the men to go and get work, and it fell on the men to provide the work that wasn't available because of government intervention. And, but let, so let's say sort of from the, the late 1940s to the present, sort of 60 or 70 years, women have had it really good. I mean, they've got the welfare state, they've got uh, government health care, they've got uh, government uh, provided um, education for their kids, uh, they've got... Uh, um, They've got affirmative action for women, right, so that men have to hire them. They've got affirmative action getting into schools. Uh, their schools have been heavily subsidized, not so much in America, but in other places for sure. And the court system has been catered, has catered towards women. And most of the studies that I've read show that women get vastly more out of the tax system than they pay in, right? So they have been getting the benefits of female supremacy based upon the claims of female equality, right? So they say, well, women are equal to men, so why should you pay us less, right? Okay, so that's supremacy. In other words, you have to pay women more than they could earn in the free market based upon the claim of equality that women are equal to men. You get female supremacy. So not, not, much, not much, of course, uh, egalitarianism in sentencing, right? 90% of the people in prison are men, I think, and they're not saying, well, that's because the system is sexist against men. They say, oh, it's because men commit more crimes. It's like, okay, blacks and whites. No, no, it's different. So, and Charles Murray's book is actually not too bad for the first two thirds. It's bad in the last third, but we'll talk about that another time. So what's happened, of course, is that a couple of generations of women have had it really great, really great. Subsidized wages, subsidized education, subsidized healthcare, subsidized childcare, like governments catering to them because they live longer and vote more often and vote for longer than men. So, so what's happened is normally in the past, the women who voted for free stuff would be the women who faced the devil collecting his pay. So I did a show uh, many years ago on Spinum Land, which was a, uh, an experiment in a welfare state in, I think, 18th century England. And it didn't last very long, maybe 10, 20 years. And then everybody went broke. The government went broke. Taxes went through the roof and everybody fled. And right. So the very people who wanted the welfare state were the people who voted for the welfare state or who accepted the welfare state or hoped to profit from the welfare state by sticking around. Those people were the ones who paid the price. The people who sold their souls, the people who committed the sins were the ones who paid the price. And so the women who were like, oh, great, now we get the welfare state. Well, they ended up with their husbands who couldn't work. They ended up with massive debts. They lost their homes and they had to leave. And so the women who voted for free stuff or the women who wanted free stuff or the women who accepted free stuff were the women who paid the price. Now. Now it's different. Now, the 70 years of free stuff, now the bill is coming to you. And the bill that is coming to you is, okay, you got your free stuff. You got the unearned, and the wages of sin is the draft. Now we got you. Now we've got you. Now, why I think this is, I don't want women to be drafted. I don't want anyone to be drafted. But let's look at the sort of 
amoral mechanistic play out of this particular scenario. It's very interesting, I think. The scenario kind of plays like, out like this, which is women have had the luxury of viewing the state for the last 70 years as an almost exclusively benevolent entity. Benevolent, munificent, wonderful. The state is the sugar daddy. The state is the husband. The state is, you know, they, they bat their eyes, they shake their voting card and they, they yell and they get free stuff, right? You know, the, the, the tipping point for most women is when they're young, they get resources by being attractive, which is a positive incitement, uh, inducement. And then when they're older, they get resources by not nagging, right? If you don't, if give me resources because I'm pretty is the young part of a woman's life for, for a lot of women, not all. But for an older woman, it's like, give me resources or I'll keep nagging you. And so the voters, women have been able to manipulate usually male politicians into giving them free stuff. And again, most women can't resist free stuff any more than men can resist free sex, even if it's an illusion in the form of pornography, as I mentioned earlier. And it seems to give you benefits, but it costs you enormously in the long run. So women have had all of this free stuff for generations, and now the bill is coming due. What that means is that the mask is off, right? So the state, which has seemed like this wonderful sugar daddy fairy of infinite resources, is now revealing that there is a price for everything. And the illusion that there's not a price for things is what keeps this craziness going. So now the, you know, like, so in traditional, it's 19th century literature, but you know, it's, it's really common. What happens is there's a wonderful guy. He seems totally perfect. He's handsome. He's got abs. He's wealthy. He's charming. He's successful. He is very wealthy, but never seems to work very hard. Never seems to have to work very hard. So he seems like the perfect guy and the woman is completely swept off her feet. And then what happens? What happens is every single time it's the same damn thing. What happens is he's got a dark side. He's got a 50 shades of gray side. He's got, he's a mean guy. He's controlling. He turns out to have a fetish. He turns out to, to do drugs. He turns out to have a girlfriend. He turns out to whatever, right? So this is a typical story for women. It's the too good to be true, true story or another way of putting it. And this is the same thing for men. You know, wow, you're in your early 30s. You're gorgeous. You're well-educated. You're wealthy. Why are you still single? She seems perfect. And then <laughs> mask comes off and she's insane, right? The hot mess. And so this, for, for women, being swept off your feet by it's all perfect, it's all wonderful, and then the mask comes off and the woman is shocked and horrified and appalled, well, the draft is the mask coming off. This is the sex dungeon of the guy with the abs, the Jamie Dorn character from Fifty Shades of Grey. And so now what's happening is women are saying, oh, wait a minute, maybe we did sell our souls to the devil. Maybe there is a price for everything that we want for free. Maybe we are beginning to understand about the state, what men have always said about the state, which is the state is really, really fucking dangerous. The state is a agency of violence populated by charming sociopaths who can talk you out of your liberties. The state is really, really dangerous. As uh, Washington said, it's like fire. It's a good servant and a terrible master. And Barack Obama, it's a state, he said very clearly, the state is an agency of force. The state is an agency of violence. 
And so it's kind of like the mafia wife, right? The mafia wife who's like, well, my husband doesn't really seem to have to work that much. We've got this beautiful Tony Soprano pool and house and he's got respect and, and he can snap his fingers and things happen in City Hall. I never have to wait for permits. And, you know, if a cop ever pulls me over, I just get, it's all wonderful, right? Uh, until he, she notices that the roses are growing really well because there are actually bodies buried in the backyard or something like that, right? There's a price, there's a cost. There's a, the bill comes to you. The bill comes to you. Like the drug addict, right? The bill comes to you and you lose your teeth. So with the state beginning to close the circle around women, saying, hey man, we give you 70 years of free stuff. Now the bill is coming to you. Now we own you. We owned you by positive incentives. Now we're owning you through negative punishments, right? So we bribed you like crazy, but now you owe us your battle-ready physiques and, and we will control you. We will own you. And what that does, of course, is it brings women into the same place that men have been historically. So men got the vote, but men could be drafted. And the draft was the reminder that the state was very dangerous. And the state is not your friend. And knowing that the state was very dangerous and the state was not your friend meant that men could vote. And they weren't going to vote for free stuff. They weren't going to vote for money printing, they weren't going to vote for any of these things because the state could draft you and send you off to get your head blown off at any time. Just be, and, you know, you look at, uh, I mean, the, the horrors of, of the Civil War and, of course, the First World War, and you name it, right? And the Franco-Prussian War, for heaven's sakes. So the state was controlled because the men who voted for government policies we're on constant notice. Every time they open the mail, every time there's a war brewing, every time there's a political conflict brewing, they're like, oh my God, I could get drafted. I, 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 could, I could get dragged out into some medieval battlefield and get an arrow through my eyeball, which at least would be a quick end, or I could get an arrow through my belly and have acid melt into my guts for hours, or I could get an arrow through my side and then maybe get an infection, maybe survive, maybe not. And even if I come back, whole in body, I'm still shattered in spirit, particularly after the First World War, because wars were supposed to be very short, brutal affairs, and the things went on for four plus years. It destroyed men. That's what shell shock came from. They thought that brave men who couldn't go back and couldn't fight and couldn't get out of bed, that they something had gotten wrong with their brains because of shell shock, and that's where Nietzsche and, and um, Sigmund Freud became very popular because they, Freud in particular, had some explanation which was the unconscious. So what's happened, I think, is that the shadow of the devil's horns are now crossing across the women's hearts, right? Which is, oh, wait, that's really dangerous. Wait, draft, drafted? I could get pulled away from my family, pulled away from my job, pulled away from my tequila, pulled away from my nightclubs? I could get drafted by the state? They could send me off with a 80-pound pack to get shot at? and step on children's toys that blow half my leg off? Holy shit, that's dangerous. To which the men say, ha, yeah, hello. <laughs> yes, it is dangerous. It's not a sugar daddy. It's the mafia. It's the mafia. You get your free stuff, and then you pay like hell for it, probably forever, possibly with your life. So it's a little hard for women to go with this wonderful, benevolent, daddy, sugar state if the state can drag them off to war 
and shrapnel can go through their tits, right? It's really, really tough to maintain that delusion that the state is just some infinite resource sugar daddy that's going to make everything fine and absolve you of all the consequences of your bad decisions and, you know, make sure that abortion stays legal and gives you free birth control, right? So that pivot is a really, really powerful thing and is going to, I think, put men and women a little bit more on the same page. Of course, women are going to try and wriggle out of it. And I mean, of course, you would too, right, if you, if you could. But that's what I really wanted to talk about, that the intergenerational stuff for soul bargain is potentially reaching the end of its road, which we kind of need it to do. Because as long as half the population thinks that the state is an infinite benevolent sugar daddy, we're not going to be able to uh, keep our freedoms at all. All right, so let me just, uh, oh, did I lose a lot? Oh, I did. Oh, I did. Let's see here. Uh, yeah, Bill Gates, Georgia Stones, yeah, I get all that stuff. Uh, let's see here. You send the Karens in first to totally confuse the enemy. I don't, you know, Karens, uh, Karens are tough because nobody's armed, right? All right. I'm so sorry. I lost track of your questions. I'm going to have to just stroll down to to bottom. All right. So, yeah, I will um I just yeah, I just wanted to sort of share this this idea and um thanks for joining me outside of the studio. I like the studio, but um it's nice having a bit more of a sort of relaxed chat if that makes sense. So, um, so yeah, just a couple of little items, some, some, a request, some, some, an offer. Of course, my, my free audiobook. this has to, has to, has to be your next listen. This book is fantastic. It's an amazing, amazing novel. It's free. The audiobook is free. Uh, and just, just give the first, give the first couple of chapters. I mean, listen to me acting my heart out and all that, right? In the novel, I'm a trained actor and did a lot of voice work and so on. So just freedomain.com forward slash almost, or you can go to almostnovel.com, almostnovel.com. Totally free. It's a thing of beauty and depth and great power. And uh, I poured a huge amount of heart, soul, and history into this book, and um, it's fantastic. It, it is absolutely fantastic. There's nothing else like there, out there like this in the literary world that I know of. Um, Pan-European, scope, depth, Germany, England, France, Churchill, Daladier, um, everyone's in it. And, and you should just listen to this. It's an incredible book. And it really is the foundation of the personal is the political. Like the big political decisions come out of the deepest personal traumas. Uh, it's an amazing. And if you've ever had trouble with a sibling, it's the book for you, man. So almostnovel.com, you can get that totally for free. Um, yeah, if you want my novel, which is, I don't want to sound like if you want another free novel, fdrurl.com forward slash TGOA for The God of Atheists. That's another great free novel um, about my time in the software industry to some degree as well. So that's, yeah, you can go to freedomain.locals.com. Lots of stuff that's out there early. I put the Suzanne Venker uh, interview out there early. Lots of podcasts out there early, uh, which you can get a hold of long before everyone else. If they even made it to the main feed, some of them don't. And I do live stream just for those uh, supporters as well. So freedomain.locals.com. Other donations, if you want to help out, freedomain.com forward slash donate, of course. And last but not least, freedomainnft.com. Freedomainnft.com. And uh, you can, it's on the homepage as well, my NFTs. 
uh, go and check out this uh, NFT. Um, I think it's really, really interesting. It's going to be able to grab a very powerful slice of the history of philosophy. I'm going to be big in the history of philosophy. Like it or not, agree with me or not, call me <laughs> megalomaniacal or not. I've had the biggest philosophical reach of any philosopher in history. The biggest reach to the widest audience of any philosopher in history. I'm going to be very big in the history of philosophy. You can own a unique, limited slice of this history of philosophy, me at the age of 23, analyzed by me at the age of 54. It's a wild, wild thing, and uh, I hope that you will look into it. It's pretty cheap, and um, you'll really enjoy the thing itself. And, of course, it's a limited edition collectible, so who knows what value it'll have in the future. I think quite a bit. So thanks, everyone, for dropping by tonight. It's such a great pleasure. Let me know what you think of the slightly more chatty uh, format. And uh, look at that. I, I calculated as I was going along. It's 81.737% original material. And the rest of it is just donation pitches. So uh, thanks, everyone. Have yourself a wonderful evening. A great pleasure to chat with you as usual. And uh, I will see you, if not before Wednesday, Wednesday night, 7 p.m. Sorry I missed last week, but uh, we'll be back. And, uh, yeah, go, uh, go make some babies for me, okay? Thanks. <laughs>